Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales podcast stands in solidarity with you. Transcripts of the show can be found in the show notes. This episode is a little bit special. Sort of. Kind of. It's a story I wrote that is featured in the Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities. It's been edited down a little bit to make it more self-contained. I decided to go with it because we've been getting a lot of thunderstorms here in Georgia just this weekend, and I didn't want thunder to crash in on the recording as it would have a couple of times making the editing more of a nightmare than it usually is. You've heard a raw recording, you know how rough it gets. So, I hope you enjoy it, and for more context, please pick up a copy of the Colin Maltrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities. Link is in the show notes. The Cormorant Mirror In Hertfordshire, England, there is a family of bakers who have been bakers since time out of mind. They've been bakers as long as anyone remembers, and their bakery has been passed down from father to son as long as they've been extant. They've been bakers for so long they got their name from their family occupation back in the Middle Ages. They've been bakers as far back as their family history has been traced. They are, for the most part, a completely boring family. Nothing special sets them apart from anyone else, so we're not going to spend too much time on them except to say this. Within their home, like any other boring family, they have family pictures. Some are recent, some are fairly old. All of them, except for one, are unexceptional and would mean nothing to anyone, but that one photograph is interesting, even if it's to nobody but me. It's a picture from about 80 or so years ago, mother, daughter, father, smiling in front of a building. It's obvious they don't go to fancy restaurants very often, but they were that night. None of that is important. What is important is the bulletin board standing to the extreme left of the picture. Some of the ads on it are still visible and provide for the amateur historian an interesting look into life at that time and place. To the extreme left of that is an ad that is partially obscured by a flyer for Theodore's Marvelous Cyclotron. I have no idea what that is. I look every now and then but have never found any newspaper articles, journal entries, letters, memorandums, or any other type of historical record other than this showing that Theodore's Marvelous Cyclotron ever existed. Not important. The ad is half-obscuring another ad, which itself is only half in the frame of the picture, but what can be read of it is the lower half of what I believe is the word phantasmagorical, roar-enders. This is important. It is, I think, the only reference I've been able to find that the Cormorant Mirror was in one of its found phases. No other mention from that time period has been found so far, and yes, it's possible that the flyer is over 30 years old, but it's still a tantalizing find. The Cormorant Mirror is an interesting historical study that almost no one else seems to have picked up on. If one does, and looks long enough, as I have, one finds references to it, and if you correlate enough information, an interesting story begins to unfold. The Mirror goes through lost and found phases. It can be found in historical records, usually in the court of a king, sometimes in the possession of a witch, and through the following seven or eight years, regular mentions of it will be made. Then, nothing. The mirror just vanishes from the record, and no trace of it can be found for 25 or 30 years. I'll tell you one of these transitions and let it stand for all the rest, because they all follow the same pattern. 
In Ireland, there's a library which, in its archives, contains the tattered remains of a nameless farmer's journal. In June of 1742, he got caught in a shower and took shelter in a nearby shallow cave with which he was familiar. While waiting for the rain to let up, he saw something smooth and clear and examined it. It turned out to be about 10 feet by 10 feet, seven-sided and reflective. History does not relate how the Cormorant Mirror came to be half-buried and unbroken in that cave in Ireland. The most recent reference to it before that was in the court of Ottoman Sultan Ahmed III in what is now present-day Turkey. In financial records, we can find that this farmer sold the mirror to a traveling merchant named William Clark, who subsequently sold it in Devonshire, England, to a man named Thomas Callahan. Callahan's journal, better preserved than the farmer's, can be found in the possession of his descendants in Staffordshire. It was a warmer-than-usual night in 1745. Thomas Callahan was sipping a drink and looking in the mirror. The reflection seemed to be darker than the lights in the room would have made it, and he turned up the lanterns. When he looked back at the mirror, his reflection was raising its drinking glass in a salute to him. The shock was intense, and it caused him to drop his glass, which shattered on the floor. He looked down, looked back up, and the reflection was back to normal, doing everything he did. He waved his arms, it waved its arms. He ran in place, so did the reflection. He did jumping jacks. The reflection, too, got its heart rate up. He stepped toward the mirror, his reflection doing the same, and reached his hand out. He paused just before touching it. His reflection paused, but in the mirror, behind him, there was movement. Ghostly shapes faded in and out, murky and indistinct. He watched them, not moving, afraid to break the spell. One of the apparitions moved toward him, and though Callahan didn't feel anything, he watched as a ghostly hand was laid on his shoulder. The face leaned forward to reveal... Callahan closed his eyes, refusing to believe. When he opened them again, the mirror was empty. Just him in his room, no ghostly shapes, no moving reflections... No vision of his mother, dead for ten years. He touched his tips to the cold surface, and they passed straight through. Quickly he pulled his hand back and looked down at it. There was a scratch, such as a cat might have made if it clawed at you. Thomas hadn't noticed it before, and it looked fresh. A little drop of blood was beating at the end, and he thought it might possibly be from however he slid his hand through the glass. He stepped back from the mirror and took another sip of his drink, his mind turning with possibilities. The reflection winked back at him. There may or may not be some embellishment in the tale of Thomas Callahan. Callahan brought the mirror to Buckingham Palace, where, upon examination of the mirror and its unusual properties, he was offered a handsome sum for it. Royal records record the purchase and payment— other historical documents record the study and the renown it garnered. It is possible to find archived newspapers advertising the mirror and a not insignificant sum to those who can divine its purpose. Magicians, scientists, alchemists, mathematicians all came to examine it. Their names are all down in the records of the time, and one or two of them still have extant notes about it. Footnote. All of these notes record in some way or another some sort of injury. They are, for the most part, non-serious, little cuts and scrapes, but in 1747, a year before the diocese ruling, one of the mathematicians studying it just disappeared. He was there when the other fellows left, and when they came back in the morning, the doors and windows were barricaded from the inside, 
and he was nowhere to be found and was never seen again. None of them were able to explain how it worked. The Church of England records a meeting about a year later in which it was decided a delegation should be sent to the throne to tell them to get rid of the mirror as it is clearly a work not of God, but of the deceiver. Financial records show the mirror being sold to a menagerie, and from there the mirror can be traced as it traveled around England through newspaper articles. The mirror was still doing its little tricks, though after the first week no one was allowed to put their fingers through it anymore. Journal entries, mostly younger people but some factory workers, and police reports. Children went missing all the time, of course, but only a few of them were mischievous adventurers who, if the reports are accurate, told their friends they were sneaking off to touch the mirror. The menagerie workers were questioned, but ultimately cleared of any wrongdoing. In 1750, we find a journal entry by young Winifred Stagwell, age 12, who writes how excited she is to go to the menagerie and see the lions and elephants and the wonderful mirror of mystery. This entry is notable because it is the last time the mirror is mentioned in this period. Newspaper archives mention the traveling menagerie, correlating journal entries from that time confirm its existence, but none of them mention the mirror. There are, likewise, no articles about the disappearance of the mirror, no police reports filed in relation to the mirror, and no journal entries exist in which people lament missing it. The next time the mirror shows up in any historical record, it's 1787, and it is found by a missionary in the hut of a Cambodian mystic. The mystic told the missionary it had been found washed up on the shore of a nearby lake. The history of the mirror is rife with these types of stories. It appears, it vanishes without a trace, literally without a trace. The only proof I've been able to find to back up this pattern is the complete lack of any record of its existence during those times. It's been that way as far back as I've been able to trace it. The earliest I've been able to find definitive proof is in 983 BCE. There is a set of documentation known as the Vedas that detail Vedic life in what is present-day India during that time period. There is one page that has a drawing of a man standing before what is clearly the Cormorant Mirror. He has on a green robe, and his arms are upraised as if in supplication. The reflection in the mirror is also wearing a green robe, but there's something off about it, almost a suggestion of leatheriness, like wings folded about it. While the man's head is looking toward the sky, the head of the thing in the reflection is looking straight at the man, and its eyes are a vivid red. It wasn't until my fourth or fifth opportunity to study the picture that I noticed the hem of the robe, or wings, in the reflection was drawn to look like it was coming slightly out of the mirror. Earlier than that, I have only the vaguest notion, and no concrete proof. I thought I might get some once. I received a call from a man who refused to give me his name. He said it would be safer for him that way. He said he knew that I had been studying the history of the ghost mirror, footnote, his name for it, and that he knew of a record of it almost 200 years before the Vedas drawing. We set up a meeting time, and I headed out to the appointed spot at the appointed time and waited. And waited. The man never appeared. After an hour and a half, I went back home. The next day, I called the number the man had called me from. It was disconnected and no longer in service. I never heard from him again. 983 BCE is the earliest I've been able to find any solid evidence of the mirror's existence. That's not to say that there isn't any. 
If one knows where to listen, one can hear rumors and whispers of possibly earlier accounts. Study of ancient texts and tablets and carvings can set you on a path that disappears off a cliff when the next step in the trail references something that no longer exists. The oldest possible evidence of the mirror I've seen with my own eyes was found on a wall, the carving mostly obliterated by sand and weather. A rubbing helped clear it up a little, and while it is an upright shape and seven-sided, and there seem to be people gathered around it, the wear and simply dated condition has rendered it nearly useless. I should very much like to continue studying it, but the archaeological site where it was located, Gobekli Tepe, has since been closed to me. The history of what would become known to me anyway and me only since I seem to be the only one studying this phenomenon as the Cormorant Mirror affords an interesting education in history, historical study and research, and strange mysteries. I've been keeping track of it for my own personal edification since I stumbled across two unrelated documents that both mention it hundreds of years apart and independent of each other. I would probably have still left it for my own edification except for a few things that have recently happened. The first is that the mirror's transition seemed to be slowing. Throughout all the records I've been able to find, it appears for five to seven years every 25 to 30. This information, once I hypothesized it, helped me find missing references by searching the time periods where it should be mentioned. Finding them there added to the pool of statistics, and that helped find more. I've constructed an almost complete timeline from 787 CE to the present, I've got bits and pieces before that, but what bothers me the most, and what I fear I'm never going to find now, hence the formal publication of this document, are the stubborn little stretches where I haven't found anything. 1432 to 1517, for example. There should be at least two different stretches of found, but I haven't found anything. Anyway, the transition seemed to be slowing. Over the last century, it has appeared only twice. The first time was around 50 years ago, which was itself almost 35 years after the last. It was in the possession of a wealthy eccentric named Tristan Cormorant. Tristan died a few years before I started on my own little madness about the mirror, but his valet, a man named Bartholomew Highchurch, was able to provide me the background information I was looking for, and more importantly, even had records from the time to refer to. He was old at the time and died not long after, but I was granted permission to interview his son Robbie. Not a very long one, and he wasn't super coherent, being under a strong sedative at the time, but I was able to get his story, and I believe him. There was enough corroborating evidence to back him up in the historical record. If I had heard his story without knowing what I know, and without seeing constabulary reports anywhere the mirror has been found, I would probably have dismissed him as a madman, locked up in a sanitarium for his own good, just as others have done. God help me, though. I believe him. Tristan Cormorant was a wealthy eccentric who would go on to achieve pop culture fame by burying a large portion of his wealth out in the middle of nowhere and leaving nigh-on inscrutable clues to its hiding place. Or possibly places. No one is sure if there are multiple locations. Cormorant went out one day and was gone for several hours. When he came back, he called for his valet, and together they brought the mirror into Nightflower Mansion. Highchurch said that Cormorant told him he had bought it from a man in Clutier, Iowa. This is more than likely a false story, though why Cormorant hid the truth went to the grave with him. Footnote. 
Why, first of all, would a man of Cormorant's wealth go to a town the size of Cludier? It has less than 100 people in its population, and it's far away from where they lived. So, when did he go? Certainly not that day. He wouldn't have made it back in time. And why not take the valet with him? High Church makes mention of the trip and the acquisition of the mirror in the household journal. I feel it is a pretty safe assumption to make that Cormorant had, at that time, recently conceived of the idea of the treasure hunt. He was scouting locations that day and came across the mirror lying in a field or a river or a cave, just as it always is, and brought it back. That's just a guess, of course. It's an educated guess, backed up by a newspaper article mentioning how part of his treasure had been found in a field 62 miles away from his home, and said field abuts a river that, during the year the mirror was found, was suffering from a drought that kept its water level very low, but a guess nonetheless. Cormorant kept the mirror in his library for several months. High Church told me that he would often close himself in, staring at the mirror. Then one day, he called High Church to help him carry it into his personal study— the mirror was kept in the study from that day forward, and the study itself was locked whenever Cormorant was not in it. In fact, there was only one time that the mirror was not in the study during the entire rest of the time High Church shared his life at Nightflower with it. The day of Tristan Cormorant's funeral. Which brings us to Robbie High Church. Robbie was the son of Bartholomew and lived with him at Nightflower. He was a mostly good kid, little rambunctious, tried to be earnest, but he was the reason the study door was kept locked. He was also the reason I had to travel to the other side of the country to talk to the high churches. When Cormorant died, he was buried in the family plot and the reception was held at Nightflower. Many people were there milling about, talking quietly, and little Robbie Highchurch, much to his eternal regret, was bored. So he wandered around. He first checked the study door as he always did because he, like most children and cats, wanted most to be in places where he wasn't allowed. It was locked. He went upstairs to his room, saw all the same old stuff, and went back downstairs, through the kitchen, into the library. And there was the mirror. He knew about the mirror, but had never been allowed near it, and after he'd been woken in the middle of the night by Mr. Cormorant screaming, and then silence, and then the sound of sirens, had never seen it again. And now, here it was and there was no one else around. He double-checked, looking back over his shoulder, and then approached the mirror. His reflection stepped forward as well and stopped when he did. He followed the carvings around the outside with his finger, looking at its height more than twice his own. Everything in the mirror seemed darker than it should be. Ghostly figures seemed to move in the background watching him. One of them came forward, long hair moving softly in a breeze that didn't exist. It was his mother. His mother, dead for five years, but looking not a day older. She smiled at him, reached out a hand, and pressed it against the glass. He reached his hand out, touched the cool, reflective surface right where her hand was. Seconds later, the life of Robert Bartholomew Highchurch descended into madness and delusion from which he would never recover. Several things I've written in this monograph have been conjecture. There haven't been any unfounded guesses, but there have been some educated ones, as I said before. This is not the case with Robbie Highchurch's story. I heard it from him directly, even if I had to winnow out the madness from the truth. 
parts of the story sound like I got it wrong, but I've seen the hospital reports. I saw the thing with my own eyes while talking to Bartholomew. And I have a little bit of my own experiences, which have led to my writing this. Back at the reception, Bartholomew was talking to Cormorant's lawyer, discussing details for when to execute the will when the scream reached them. High Church recognized the scream immediately as his own son and broke off mid-sentence, running out of the room, calling for him. After searching several rooms, they found Robbie on the floor of the library, curled up in a fetal ball. The next few minutes are a blur to High Church, but he remembers very distinctly the vivid streaks of red blood spread over the mirror, bright against the dull brown of the library. High Church and his son were taken to the hospital in an ambulance. Robbie was gabbling the whole way about how his mother grabbed him through the mirror trying to drag him through. He had fought, but his hand and half of his arm passed through it. The thing in the mirror had changed from his mother to some sort of winged monster. Its claws extended, digging into his arm. He jerked back hard, his arm ripping, and fell back, clutching it as he landed. He remained insensible until his father found him a few minutes later. In the hospital, the doctors extracted from his arm some sort of claw, about four inches long and a dark reddish-brown color. High Church still has it. It's sitting in a jar, wrapped up in several towels inside a box that is itself filled with several rags and cloths on the top shelf of his closet. He told me he kept it insulated like that because sometimes the claw rattles against the glass, trying to get out. During the following week, the house and grounds were searched thoroughly, but no trace of any wild animal was found. A day or two later, Cormorant's estate was mostly sold off, but one thing that didn't sell was the mirror. After everything was settled, Bartholomew and Robbie moved away to the other side of the country. Robbie never recovered from what happened that night. He would wake up screaming about something he called the Aztec moth, and he didn't like to look in mirrors. Anytime he tried to explain what happened, he was told he was wrong. After a while, his mind just... went. It appears that the mirror didn't sell in the end because the mirror wasn't there. It had vanished and wouldn't turn up again for another 40 years. Slowing, like I said. When it reappeared this time, there were two special factors. First, it was two years ago. The second factor, as well as the second reason for writing this monograph for formal publication, is that it appeared ten miles away from me. The first I knew of this second appearance, I was in line at the grocery store, not thinking of anything in particular when my eyes swept over the tabloids. Between divorcing celebrities, cheating celebrities, pictures of celebrities getting coffee both with and without makeup, I saw a copy of Strange World, the spiritual successor of the weekly World News, home of Batboy, Bigfoot, and Alien Grey's meeting with presidents. There was a picture of the mirror on the cover. Ghost mirror found shows images of deceased loved ones. I snatched it up and bought it immediately. The place it had been found was close by, and the place it currently was, if Strange World could be believed, a dubious prospect at the best, was only ten miles away. I drove home calmly, let myself into my apartment, put my keys down on the counter, walked into the bathroom, and vomited. Confession time. I never went to see if it was really there. Strange World. They made up everything. I had no reason to believe it was real. Apparently, neither did anyone else, because no one talked about it anywhere. Nothing on the news, 
nothing on the internet. A mirror that shows you deceased loved ones and nothing anywhere? I wrote off Strange World and mostly forgot about it for a year. It was shortly after that time a video surfaced purporting to show the mirror, complete with ghostly shapes and the dead mother of the person recording it. There's a YouTuber named Phil Poling who trades under the name Parabreakdown. He looks at videos of paranormal phenomena and gives his opinion. Most of the time, he's able to use his photography expertise to conclude a video has been faked in some way. However, in the video he did about the Cormorant Mirror recording, he found no evidence to suggest it had been fabricated, and he did not have any sort of explanation for what the video was showing. On various internet forums, there was a round of skeptics taking it apart, debunking it, arguing against para breakdown, and a month or so later, another round of videos going back at the skeptics and arguing why they were wrong, followed by another round of debunking it. These interactions convinced me I should go check it out. The mirror was being displayed at the Carlton Cooper house about half an hour away from where I live. When I got there, there was a line of about ten people outside and probably more inside. Getting through the line took another hour, which seemed longer to me. One of the attendants took my ticket, it cost $25 to get in, and held out his arm toward a hallway. There it was, big as life. The Cormorant Mirror. Indian fakirs, rulers of countries, Cambodian mystics, Irish farmers, countless English circus-goers. All had stood before it. No one knew where it came from or where it would go next. But it was real. It was all real. If I needed any more confirmation, I looked into the mirror, and the reflection did seem darker. I saw myself and the other people in the room. Footnote, other attendees, as well as people assigned to make sure no one tried to steal it. But I saw others. Beings and things that were not in the room, but in the mirror nevertheless. I didn't see any deceased loved ones, but... I could understand how people could convince themselves otherwise. I stepped forward, put a finger against the cold glass, and pushed. Nothing. I pushed a little harder. Still nothing. Not the slightest give. I sighed and stepped back, and then my time was up and it was the next person's turn. I left out a side door, got in my car, and drove home. When I got home, I started compiling all my notes and working on rough drafts of this essay, confession, whatever it is. I needed to know the truth about the mirror. I needed to know where it went, how it vanished. It was here and had been for at least three years. It would go soon, and I intended to be there when it did. If it did. Maybe it would stay with me, recognizing me as a true acolyte. Through a series of events spanning a week or so, and far too mundane to go into detail about, the mirror is in my study now. It's on the wall behind me as I write this. It has been my life's work, and I intend to see this through to the end. If it disappears again, it won't come back until I'm dead, and then I'll never know. I have been finding myself drawn to it lately. Its mysteries beckon to me. There seems to be nothing supernatural about the construction. I was even able to chip off a bit of the wood that was framing it. But it has survived millennia, maybe longer. It might 
predate humankind itself. But that will never be provable. The urge to enter the mirror came over me for the first time about a week after I got it. I was looking through my notes and suddenly felt an intense desire to touch it. To enter it, if I could. I resisted, not trusting the feeling, and it eventually faded. About a week later, it happened again. This time I turned to look at the mirror, and something was in it, looking back at me. I could only make out the green glow of its eyes, but it was definitely there. A little under a week later, it happened a third time, and again about five days after that. It's becoming more frequent, and I'm afraid I'm eventually going to do it. Annotator's Note The writing is growing increasingly difficult to read at this point. The mirror calls to me daily. Every day I think about trying to push through it. I don't go into that room very much anymore. The temptation is stronger in there. I should get rid of it. But that would require going into the room and doing something with it. It has been with me for a year, and it'll go soon. If I can just hold on a little longer, it'll go, and I'll be free. But I need to know. I need to know how and where it goes. To do that, I'm going to have to be in the room with it. I know that's more dangerous. But I need to know. There have been dreams about the mirror. Something is in there. Something that wants... I don't know what. In the short term, I think the answer is me. And in the long, no idea. Annotator's note. The rest of this page is blank, but the narrative picks up again on the next. There is a sound, a name, something rattling around in my head. I I can't quite hear it, but... I drink to make it go away when I'm home. I stay out, away from the house as much as I can, but then I grow fearful that someone has broken in to steal it. In the end, I always come home to check and make sure it's okay. Just another year. But I need to know. Annotator's note. The writing suddenly becomes much scragglier and very difficult to read. I have done my best to transcribe it here. Cross the threshold, saw God help me, I know that it's not a mirror, a doorway to its realm, Atlas Mef, I don't know how I escaped, just the name thundering in my head over and over, Matlas Mef, Atlas Mef, Atlas Mef, calling me back, seeing that things that can't be people in the room I know aren't here, all urging me to go, I want to, don't think I should all be telling me to go, except for the man with the water bottle, he says not to, but the other voices are so loud. And that is the end of the story. Please feel free to support the show on Patreon or any of the institutions fighting for reproductive justice. All links in the show notes. David Ricker, Amber Vale, and Steve Meyer, thank you for your support. Please go and get vaccinated for anything and everything you are able to get, especially COVID. It's on the rise again with a particularly bad strain, so please do everything you can to protect yourself and others. If you see a bigot of any shade out and about on the street, humiliate him utterly, any way you can. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, 
and I'll see you next week.